Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. I was really so inspired in, in many ways, and, and really last week uh, my mom shared and really did such a great job talking about uh, the topic of judgment and how it affects us in our lives and and how really in so many ways, unknowingly, we enter into this place of agreement with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in doing so, we disconnect from the tree of life. In doing so, we disconnect from the source of all that God has for us, and it's so important that we would recognize any place where this is happening, and that we would uh, really just allow the Holy Spirit to show us what it means to reconnect back with Him as the ultimate source in every area. And as I was reading uh, my, you know, my devotional time this morning, I'm doing this Bible plan to read through the Bible in one year, and I've done it a couple times, and it's always exciting for me to, to go through a new Bible, and by the time I'm done with it, I've got every page, there's just something on it that, that has been highlighted that God has spoken to me. Um, but when you get to about three quarters of the way through, you end up in Chronicles, in my topical Bible. And for the first nine chapters, it's a lot of like, this is genealogy and, you know, this person and that person. And, and I've come to find out that these genealogies and, you know, specifically in Chronicles, that there's a lot of significance to it. They're, they're pointing back to really looking at from Adam all the way through the Davidic line, through the tribe of Judah and, and eventually ending up in the savior that we know to be Jesus. Um, but the first couple of chapters are like, okay. Like, I hope there's something else in my reading today because I just read a bunch of names off a page. Um, but what I found out was that in the Jewish tradition, when you're reading the book of Chronicles, it's actually the last thing that you read. It was the last part of the story that would be told. It was a recap of all that Israel had been through. And it brings you to that conclusion, as we said, of the new temple, the new kingdom, and the Messiah that would come from the line of David. And so I did learn a little bit about Chronicles, and now you've learned a little bit about Chronicles as well, uh, if you hadn't already. But I got to chapter 9, and there was something that stood out to me. And I'm sure this has happened to you before. You're reading through the Bible, and there's just a phrase that stands out to you. There's, there's maybe in the translation that you're reading, you, you see something that you hadn't seen before. And so this happened in both chapters 9 and chapters 10. And so I'm going to read First Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1. And uh, I'm going to have the first two scriptures, I think, available for you. But after that, you're going to need a Bible. So hopefully some of you brought your Bibles here tonight. Uh, Pastor Christian showed off that he brought his Bible. So, you know, good job setting the example. But uh, if you have a device, you're, you may want to, you know, switch around with us a little bit here. But First Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1. And this is just a a very short verse that speaks about Israel and some of the genealogies we're talking about. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. So let's fast forward to the next chapter, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek the guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over 
to David, the son of Jesse. So the two phrases in both chapter 9 and chapter 10 that really stood out to me were these three words, breach of faith. We see that the nation of Israel had a breach of faith, and then we see the story of Saul, which we talked about last week as well, that there was a breach of faith, and that breach of faith was that he trusted in something else and did not turn to God. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Now, when I looked at the original, the, the Hebrew for this word that we get breach of faith from, it's the word ma'al, and the definition of it is to be unfaithful or a treacherous act. And many times, if you're reading through the Old Testament and there's this word in the Hebrew, it's going to be translated as unfaithful that Israel was unfaithful, that there was something taking place where there was a covenant and that covenant had been broken. And when we build off of what we read last week, it's really important for us to see the connection between our faith and the covenant relationship that we have with God. Faith and the covenant relationship we have with God. Now, I don't know about you when I often think about faith. I don't think about covenant relationship. I think about faith as the courage to do something that I couldn't do on my own. The reliance on God to trust in Him and to take a step that, that really might seem uh, a little bit unsure or scary. But faith really has to be found in this connection to our covenant relationship with God if we're going to see it in its full Context. I don't think many of us would look at a situation in our lives where we relied upon ourselves and think that we were being unfaithful to God. There aren't many times where we would say, okay, I need an answer for the situation I'm going through, and we, and we seek a different source, or maybe we pray first, but then we go do our own thing and think about it in terms of actually having infidelity with us in God. Let's just be honest. That's not where our mind goes to. We're not thinking about being unfaithful. We're not thinking about the covenant relationship. We wouldn't think about failing to seek God as the same level of cheating on him. It's just not that, that serious in our minds. But when we look at the way the Bible describes our relationship with God, there are multiple facets to it. Obviously, children of God. But many times, what are we called as the church? the bride of Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. And Jesus, many times in the gospel, specifically in the book of Matthew, calls himself the bridegroom. Who knows that if God is giving us that representation of the bride, the groom, this relationship with God, that there is something of significance to it. And I would say tonight that it's not just that it's a representation of marriage that that really marriage is meant to be based out of god's definition of marriage so it's not just a, a representation of marriage to god this is what marriage truly is at its at its core at its deepest foundation because even when we leave this earth whether we were married or not we are going to find ourselves in a place of being the bride of christ that that's the eternal truth and revelation of it. And so there is great significance in understanding our position as the bride. So 
if God views our relationship to Jesus as the bride, then obviously, as we just said, it's, it's pretty important. And so what I want to do is I want to look to start at the connection between faith and marriage. Specifically when we're talking about marriage to God. And there's a verse that we camped out on uh, two Sundays ago, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And we were talking about the significance of our relationship with God, the way that we see Him, the way that we perceive Him. And we said that Hebrews 11, verse 6 says that, And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. We have to believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And when we went deeper into that, we saw that that word rewarder means that it's actually in God's nature and it's one of his values to bless those that he loves. It's not something that he does out of compulsion or obligation, but that he loves his children because that's who he is. So we have to understand that's the nature of God. So once again, faith, in this verse, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So in marriage, part of it is that there is a pleasure that comes from covenant relationship with one another. What is it that brings pleasure to God? All right. I was just waiting. just wanted to make sure we were all on the same page. What is it that brings pleasure to God? Okay, there's a few more that time. It's faith that pleases God. In our relationship with God, operating in faith brings pleasure to Him. We have to understand that faith is not to be held as a separate value outside of relationship, that actually our relationship with God is is really defined by the ability that we have to walk in faith, in our trust, in our relationship with Him. So we have, to, we have to relate, okay, God is, is wanting us to see him as our groom. We, we are married to him. We're in covenant relationship, not just an agreement, not just an idea of, of dating, not, not any of that. No, covenant relationship where I give myself to you fully and that in that relationship, the way that I, I bring pleasure to the heart of God is by my trust in him. It's by my willingness that in my life and in my actions and to the core of who I am that I'm going to give him myself so fully that I'm going to trust even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health, right? Till his death makes that we never have to be apart, right? This, this, is, this is what it means to walk in a place of deep covenant relationship with God. I want to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased 
to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see that is the groom? That's the groom we're talking about. The one through whom all things have meaning, life, and their identity. That, that God has pleasure in what Jesus did to, to bring everything under the supremacy of Jesus. That's our groom. That is the one who we join together in our faith. That's the one when we understand in fullness what Jesus did on the cross. That he was bringing us into a place of being able to be reunited with him in this covenant. That he gave everything. I guess you could say, and, and forgive me, I haven't thought this out, but like in some ways the, the proposal was his death on the cross. It was him coming down to us and saying, I want to be with you. Will you accept? That's pretty good. That wasn't in my notes. That's, that, one's, that one's free tonight. That's, uh, I like that. You see, we have to receive what he has given to us. And what I don't want to have happen as we're looking at this tonight is that we in any way step into a place of, of guilt or condemnation in the places that we haven't responded. But what I want to do is to really look at, from God's perspective, what this connection looks like. Uh, so that we have a greater value for it, a greater understanding of it. And that in our own lives, when we're looking at our relationship with Him, when we're looking at situations, when we're looking at the things that we're going through, that we would recognize the covenant relationship we have with Him and what that means for us. When we look through the Old Testament, we see many times that God, when He's speaking through His prophets, He's speaking in a place of judgment. He's, he's speaking about what Israel has failed to do. And there's some... some Connectivity. There's some continuity in some of the language that he uses. Um, but probably the most extreme of it is found in the book of Ezekiel. 23 times in the book of Ezekiel. Are there any children in the room? Okay. 23 times in the book of Ezekiel, he goes so far as to say that the nation of Israel are whoring after their idols. This is very graphic language that he's using, but it's, it's obviously intentional. He says, the nation of Israel, it's not just that you have wandered off. We, we read many times that they, that they went to the high places, that they worshipped idols, they did all of these things. But he goes so far as to say 23 times that you have whored yourself into, for other idols and other nations and, and other gods, and, and you have given of yourself to such an extent that, that this is the language that's being used here. Uh, I read Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. And this, this is... It's just it's always the beautiful thing about God that he even in the midst of the proclamation of judgment he's still speaking to what he's going to do and I say this a lot but it's just because it, it means so much to me but he says in chapter 6 verses 8 and 9 yet I will leave some of you alive and some translations say I will leave a remnant when you have among the nations some of you escape the sword and when you are scattered throughout the countries then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart, 
that has departed from me, and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed for all their abominations. Yes, twice in this, in this passage, he's talking about the fact that they're whoring after uh, other, other things and, and other relationships, breaking their covenant relationship. But I don't know if, if you caught the part of this that really grabbed me when I read this. It says in verse 9 that those of you who escape will remember me and remember how I have been broken over their whoring heart. How I have been broken. Who's speaking these words? God Almighty. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The God who has no lack, no need, no, no deficit of any kind. And he's the one who's saying... I've been broken over your infidelity. For God to speak those words, it does a few things, but it really reveals the nature of God. That God would be broken over his children, choosing something else. This word in Hebrew means to be grieved, but, and, and this is how it's often translated, but the actual translation of this word is to break, to break in pieces. And some vessels actually translate it to shatter. God's saying this, and, and in some ways he's being vulnerable. Like this is, once again, this is God. Let's think about who's saying this. I've been broken over what you've gone after. Over the places where you have not walked in covenant relationship and the places where you have chosen to trust in other things and to such an extent that you have walked away from, from who I am and the love that I have for you. But I also think it's important for us to see in this that it is not just, it's not that he's saying, I'm broken over your sin. He's not saying I'm broken over your transgressions, over your failings, over the things that you've done wrong. He said, I've been broken over the condition of your heart. What else does this say about God and the way that he looks at us? You know, we get so wrapped up in our actions and our failings in the places where... (laughs) where we just don't feel like we measure up. And it's not as much about that as it is about the condition of our heart. As a husband looks at his wife, and sees that she's been unfaithful, and and more than the action It's that the heart, the connection has been broken. 
word in this is, is the word zana, which also means to lust, to commit fornication, to be unfaithful. The thing that had broke God's heart was not anything about necessarily the outflow, but it was about the core. It wasn't the necessarily the effect, it was the cause. And when we look at our lives and we look at our relationship with Him, what I would say tonight is so significant and so important is that we would take the time to not get so caught up in the places that we feel that we failed, but in the places that we have failed to trust in Him. And because of that disconnection, that we have then entered into the things that become so shameful. The enemy wants us to get caught up in the places of shame and condemnation. He wants us to get caught up and look at what you did and look at who you are and look at, look at the brokenness. But, but that's not what the Father heart of God is pointing back to. That's not what the, the groom is looking back to. He's saying, what is it that caused you to walk away from my love? Because it's that thing. It's the judgment that you have made that has led you away from that place of love and connection that, that needs to be addressed and dealt with. You know, I would imagine when Ezekiel is, is speaking this proclamation, this, this judgment against the people of Israel, that many of them probably would have said, well, that's not me. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I went to the temple. I offered my sacrifice. I, I, I maybe listened to the reading of the Torah. I didn't touch anything unclean. It, it wasn't me. What, what did I do? And I would imagine for some of us here today, if we would bring this into the context of, of our lives, we would think much the same. But, but God, I went to church, and I read the Bible last week, and, and, I, and I, did, I did the things that I was supposed to do. I even like let that person in front of me in traffic, and, and, and I didn't give them the finger. And like, like, it's not me that you're talking about here. But yet, in so many ways, we can, we can do the checklist and do the things that we know to do and have absolutely no connection or relationship to the Father. That the self-righteousness of, of I did the thing is very often easier than the I'm going to put those things aside so that I can engage in relationship with the lover of my soul. There's, there's so much to this, but once again, it, it's not the actions alone that represented the unfaithfulness. It was the heart behind the actions. I would suggest tonight that the only reason that they followed after the idols in the first place is because they had lost sight of their first love that this was the breach of faith. It, it was not as much in the action, but on the reliance of something else and on something else besides God in the first place. And often it is the very same for us. It's the places where we trust more in our bank account than we do in His provision. And the judgment behind that in the first place 
the experiences that we've gone through in our lives that we have turned into a belief system as to why he won't instead of why he desires to as a perfect father. It's any place where we judge what we do not have and then decide because of what we do not have, we need to go to another source in order to get what we need. This was the visual last week. It was the two trees. It was the two trees in the, in the garden. There were more than two trees, but the two trees that, that God highlighted, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil comes about when we enter into judgment in a place of limited understanding. And what we do is we choose to eat from the tree that feels like it's going to give us some control, that we're going to have a say in the matter, that's going to make it feel like we are doing something. And because of what we're doing, there's a feeling of security in it. And when we choose this limited source of information, we make a judgment. What we're always going to enter into is a different source than God. We're going to go to a different lover. We're going to go to a different provider because we're looking, we're looking for the thing that's going to fill what we feel like we haven't gotten. But what I felt so strongly last week and, and just really meditating on some of this this week is that that judgment it really is such a temptation from the enemy the enemy is so aware of what he can accomplish in us if he could just get us to take the bait to just enter into the place of judgment like like he did for adam and eve you see the temptress in this the other woman in this right it's it is it can be represented by so many things but i believe that the enemy is so aware of of this principle that we are not aware of and so he will often use the situations to entice us to step into judgment because if god hasn't given it to us then it opens up the door for us to be unfaithful and to find another partner to find another source but we often don't recognize it because when we step into these places of fear, of lack, of unforgiveness, and in the other place where we're turning to ourselves, we don't often realize that there's a seduction in the midst of it. We don't often understand that we enter into unforgiveness because on some level it feels good because we have control because we can do something about it, because we can make sure the other person is going to pay for what they did. And we put ourselves on the throne and decide that we are going to be the judge and jury. We, we, we take God out of that place and we don't trust that he's able to use that situation for something greater. To trust that he can bring restoration and healing. And I hear about it too much and there's far too many people in the body of Christ that are walking in unforgiveness. There are far too many people in the body of Christ that have allowed themselves to walk in unforgiveness and to choose to say, I'm going to hold on to this thing because of what they did, to allow relationship to be broken, to allow relationship with children and grandchildren and, and brothers and sisters and, and all of those things to, to allow that division to come in and to actually affect their relationship with God. But there's something about it that feels better. It's the same place when we choose to trust in money over God. 
because it feels better to have the relative certainty of having what we need than the discomfort of having to trust in his provision. We lose sight of who he is as the groom. Not just Jehovah Jireh, as important as that truth is, not just the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as significant as that is, but as the groom, right? When I do vows in a marriage, I make sure that they realize that, that what is once yours is now theirs, and, and what was once the, the other ones is now theirs. It's, Jamie jokes sometimes, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. Just joking, of course, but it's the understanding that what is mine is now yours. And when we're entering into covenant relationship with the perfect groom that is always faithful, he's the one that that he wants to give what we need. And we're over here holding on to whatever money that's going to make us feel secure, when in comparison, what God has is so much more. I don't care if you have millions of dollars in the bank. That security is nothing compared to what, what the groom actually has in his bank account. But sometimes we'd rather hold on to the security of what we have. Like I've, I've done marriage counseling and it's like, no, I just need to keep this just in case. Right? That's what it is. I need to keep this just in case it doesn't work out. And I've always been like, mm, don't do it. You don't want to enter into, into marriage with the backup plan with the safety net, with the plan B, just in case. But isn't that what we do? In the places where we have to hold on to this thing, because, well, if God doesn't, well, at least then. And I'm not saying anything bad about having a lot of money in your bank. I I pray that you would be blessed in your finances that you would operate in the fullness of what God has for you, that, that there would be an abundance in your life, but that your trust would always be in Him above whatever that number is, no matter how many zeros there are. Zeros on the back end, right, Pastor Dave? We were talking about something the other day. He's like, yeah, the zeros on, on the back end of the bank account, not, not on the front end. Sometimes we put our value in the ability to do everything right. Feeling like we can't come before God unless we have done more right than wrong. Because it's easier to exist in self-righteousness than to understand what true grace actually looks like. The grace that's not an excuse to sin, but it's the empowerment to no longer sin. But we hold on to, I, I did this many things right, and so now... God's going to answer my prayers. It's not the kingdom. It's, it's not. Does God desire for us to walk in righteousness? Absolutely. But in the Bible I read, it says, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and that any of my righteousness doesn't come from my effort and my ability. It comes from who he is. We have to see the seduction in these things we have to see what the enemy wants to do in this and and if we extend this out to to a view of marriage it becomes even more clear in a practical way like if i ever found out that jamie was going to to find she had a need in her life like resources and she needed money to buy groceries and instead of coming to me she went to another man 
guess what? There's going to be some conversations that are going to be had with her and, and with the man, for sure. But imagine what that would do to me if, if she decided to go to somebody else. When there's this trust that's put in somebody else and something else, it's, it, it breaks the bond of, of the relationship. I have a funny story for you just because I was thinking of it when I was preparing this. When I, I went to Africa last year uh, in November, and when I got home, I drove back from the airport, and I got home, and there's this guy in my living room. And I was like, hey, how are you? Who are you? And Jamie comes down, she's like, oh, this is, I won't say his name, he, and it's nobody from our church, so there's somebody I've never met. He's painting our living room. And I was okay with it that time. Because I didn't have to be the one painting, so it all it all worked out great. But I was like, "That's fun." Just walked in and like, I don't know who this guy is, but you know, just painting the walls, putting the molding. And there's no deeper meaning to this. I just thought it was funny. But if, if if I'm not the one painting the walls, Jamie found somebody who would. But in that case, I was all right with it. There there are certain expectations in relationship, especially in your marriage. There are certain things that should only come from your spouse. Painting is not one of them. But intimacy, of course. The highest level of trust. The highest priority of your time and your resources. The one who fills your emotional capacity for connection. These are things that are meant to be from your spouse. There's a higher value that you place on this with your spouse than anybody else if, if it is to function in, in health. That's, that's what that's supposed to look like. But so often in our lives, and, and Jamie and I were having this conversation the other day, so many people, and, and my mom mentioned this in her message uh, last week, what's the number one cause for infidelity? I had a need, they didn't fill it, so I went someplace else. But the thing about our lives is that we don't ever get to use that excuse with God. God is never the one who is not giving us what we need. But sometimes, if we want to say it this way, the enemy tricks us into thinking that's the case. And so we look to God and say, well, you didn't give me the thing that I needed in the time that I needed it, in the time that I asked for it. And so, well, of course I went to this other thing. And we don't necessarily have these conversations on, on this level, but subconsciously, we are. We're making this judgment of what we don't have. And, and so we look elsewhere. We, we break our faith. We, we have this, this, this breach of faith. We're unfaithful, and not because he isn't good enough, but because we have become distracted in our judgment about who he should be and what our lives look like in comparison to what I think it should look like. We've got to be aware of the places where we have allowed any lack or deficit to cause us to go to something or someone in order to fill what we feel like we don't have, instead of going to the source, going to the, the groom, going to the one who has all the answers, who wants to give it to us, and to recognize any of the belief systems. We keep going back to this. But the belief systems, the core beliefs, the places where we have put our trust in, in an idea or an ideology that is contrary to who God really is. 
We look uh, last week, and I, I just I, we mentioned it in the, in the beginning of this in in First Chronicles, uh, the example of Saul. Samuel was dead, and Saul breached faith by not going to God. But this wasn't the first time Saul had done this. This was the the repetitive action in Saul's life, time and time again. I. He, he didn't have the faith and the security in God because of his own insecurities, because of his judgments, because of all of these things. And so time and time again, he relied on the flesh. He relied on others. And it says that he did not turn to God. And he so relied in man that he was trying to bring up Samuel from, from the dead to speak with him. There's another story that I want to look at quickly before we, we close tonight. Found in the, the book of Joshua. The people of Israel, led by Joshua, had just seen an incredible victory. They had gone into Jericho, the walled city, and they had seen God tear down the walls and that they went into this incredible fortified city and they had seen the victory. But what's the next battle that they go into? It's the battle of Ai. And they go into this place and there's so much, so many less people in AI that they're like, don't even send the full army. Send a portion. And they go and they get their butts kicked. And Joshua's like, God, why? You just gave us this great victory. And, and, and we're your representation. And what are people going to say about you? And, and what's going on here? We got defeated by this puny little city compared to Jericho. But we get to Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. It says, but the people of Israel broke faith. This is the same word. It's the breach of faith. It's being unfaithful in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of a lot of other people in the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai and he said to them, go up and spy out the land. So they go up, they're attacked, they, they, they lose the battle. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. And the Lord said to Joshua in verse 10, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. He tells them to get up again. Finally, he gives them the ability to find out what's really going on. They find this man, Achan. But just listen to the reason that Achan gives. Listen to his, his reasoning here. It says, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold of weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. You see, he coveted what he did not have. He saw lack in the midst of the greatest victory that they had really seen. They were going into the land of promise, but he saw what he did not have. But once again, it wasn't the action of taking the robe and the money that resulted in God's anger. It was the broken faith. This is what it says. But the people of Israel broke faith. 
They broke faith. They, they stepped into a place of infidelity. It was the decision that I don't have what I need, so I'm turning to another lover. There's a lot to see in this story. I encourage you to, to go in and to, to read it even more. But it was the devoted things that, that they had held on to. And I do believe that there are specific things in all of our lives that we have held on to. And it wasn't that he, he wore it proudly. He hid it because he was ashamed of it. And what I want to ask is that we would allow the Holy Spirit to come and to speak into any places where we have, where we have allowed there to be hidden things that we've held on to for security that we've gone into for a place of, of comfort, for a place of something that we feel like is lacking in our life and that we would allow God to highlight it, to bring it to the surface so that in that area where we feel deficit and lack and neglect and anything that we don't have, that he can show himself as the perfect groom, the perfect husband, the provider, our lover, the one who desires to give us all that we need, all that we need to move forward into all that he has for us. But as long as we are holding on to these places of lack, to these judgments, the places we are connected to another source, we are not allowing what we need from our Father, Father, to be present and to be evident in our lives. 